episode 451 with Dan Wu. Uh, what's interesting is I think the lessons I learned from those guys and from being on the show wasn't so much about food. It was more about, uh, in a subtle way, and I don't think I understood it at the time, but it was about brand building. Because um, one of the biggest questions people would ask me is like, is Gordon Ramsay really like that? And I would say yes and no. Uh, he's not fake on that show, just like he's not fake on Hell's Kitchen or any of the other shows. He's an amplified, specific version or one-dimensional version of himself. When they yelled cut and they were resetting cameras and he would chit-chat with us, he was like a normal-ish guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? But when the cameras were on, he was hard-ass Gordon Ramsay that was going to chew you out. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I realized that, too. Like, one of the other questions they asked us was, uh, or people would ask me, would be like, were you ever coached? Do they tell you what to say? And they said, no, we were never coached, but... They would always say, be the biggest version of yourself. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for modern small businesses. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service to take care of your team. To help support Restaurant Unstoppable, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months Free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. 89% of guests research a restaurant online before dining out. Your website is your first impression. So answer me this question honestly. What does your website say about your restaurant? Also, websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that can help you drive revenue. Head over to getbento.com and see why thousands of restaurants trust Bento Box with their websites. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you can save up to $1,500 on initial setup. Get on it. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Dan Wu. Dan, are you feeling unstoppable today? Every day. Nice. That's what we like to hear. So originating from China, when Dan Wu was eight years old, he moved to the United States. After graduating college, Wu uh, ate his way through San Francisco and New York. And in 2014, Wu managed to find himself on Master Chef. Then he started his own podcast, The Culinary Evangelist, which ultimately led to opening his own restaurant, Atomic Ramen, located in Lexington, Kentucky. I can't wait to kind of find out how you got to where you are today. And the path you took is a path that I, uh, I really kind of think is the best way to go, which is just starting working for yourself, kind of doing those dinner parties, finding out what you, your passion is and growing a following and just getting into it, slowly scaling. Um, can't wait to kind of find out how you did that exactly, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Um, I've always said, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. I think sometimes uh, as, as a overthinker as I am, uh, sometimes you get yourself wound up into this like, oh, I can't get it to 10, so I'm not going to do it at all. And it's like, you know what? Sometimes you got to get it to 7 before yep. you can figure out to get it to 8 and then get it to 9. Yeah. And you're never going to hit 10, and that's okay. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think when people are aiming for 10 right out of the gates, they never start yeah. because they're afraid that they're not what they want to be. But you just got to start where you can and scale into 10. Yeah. Uh, so great way to get this thing started. I love it. Uh, okay, so I guess when did you know that you wanted to commit your life to food and beverage? Like when did it click for you? Man, I don't know if there was a specific moment. Um, I know uh, I got onto MasterChef as a way to um, kind of kickstart, kick down the door, put my foot in the door to get into the industry. Otherwise, you know, like I'm going to be 44 this year. Uh, when MasterChef started, I was 39. Not a great age to enter the, the, the restaurant business, especially at the bottom. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wasn't going to be a, you know, a 40-year-old washing dishes trying to work my way up <laughs> the system. At that time, you're trying to like replace yourself with other people so you can move, remove yourself. Yeah, to some degree. From, yeah. Well, I mean, I was in a, a, a good part of my life in the sense that I'd just gotten out of a, a long marriage um, and was kind of just restarting everything, really. Mm-hmm. So uh, MasterChef was this great sort of uh, kick down the door, and then I realized... I wanted to pursue it, but I didn't really know where. And after Master Chef had aired, the first question everybody asked me was, when are you going to open your own restaurant? And my answer was always never, because that's a terrible idea. And why would you open a, <laughs> your own restaurant? The failure rate is so high and the risk is so high. And like I was just like, no, nope, I'm happy doing uh, private chef stuff mm-hmm. and doing small-scale catering, doing my podcast and you know, giving back to the community, connecting with all the chefs in town, having a great time with it. Uh, and honestly, it was this opportunity here at the, the summit at Fritz Farm in Lexington. They approached me, uh, and, and that's the only reason I'm here, really. I never really actively pursued a restaurant uh, until they came to me with this opportunity, and it just seemed like the perfect fit, seemed like the perfect cuisine in the perfect town. Awesome. So uh, you never actually – so what was – when you were going into MasterChef, what was your intent at that point? Like, what, what, what was your ultimate goal through that experience? What, what did you want to accomplish? Um, honestly, like, I didn't have a, a huge set-out goal just because I had no idea what this thing was going to be. I had never had a desire to be on TV or reality TV or any of that. When this thing came to me, what was kind of amazing is when they started interviewing me for the initial auditions uh, and they put a camera and a microphone in front of me and they... You know, all they said was just be big, be the biggest version of yourself. And they would ask me, you know, kind of dumb questions like, do you think you can win this thing? And it was kind of amazing that this part of me that was inside that I never knew was there came out. And I was just like, well, of course I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to kick some ass. You know what I mean? Like nobody else can cook like me, blah, blah, blah. And it just like clicked somehow. Um, So once I got on the show... It was I was so immersed in the whole experience that I don't think I really had time to think about what life after it would be like. Once I got home, then I started really thinking about like, what do I want to get out of this? Do I want 15 minutes of fame? Not really. Um, do I want this to be that foot in the door to lead me to kind of, uh, in some ways, it, it it skips me ahead in line of the kind of dues that I would have to pay to be in the restaurant industry. You know, and it sounds weird to say it. Almost sounds like I cheated, but that's exactly what it is you know in life uh it's it's what you know but it's also who you know and the who you know gets you in the door and so in this case the who i knew was my own notoriety Mm -hmm. that got me in the door and then you have to work your ass off and be creative and be hardworking and, and stay there yeah so there's a lot of chefs that i've spoken to up to this point who have kind of uh who not necessarily criticize people that have done what you what you've done, uh, but they don't encourage people to get into the industry for those reasons. Oh, I wouldn't it. either. Okay, so <laughs> so talk to us about that and why why you shouldn't. The reality yeah. of reality TV. Yeah, I think you know the uh, 
having encountered and seen and heard from like culinary students, for example, especially young ones coming out of high school, coming out of college, they go to culinary school, and they think that coming out of culinary school with a degree, suddenly they're going to be Gordon Ramsay or Mario Batali or you know Eric Repair or something. And the reality of it is, no, you have this degree, you're still going to be scrubbing potatoes and washing dishes when you <laughs> yeah. get into a kitchen. Yeah, you know all the chefs and restaurateurs I know. A lot of them don't really care about that degree. They want to know, like, show up for a day. You're going to show up in time, on time. You're going to show up sober. You're going to do the things that are required of you without ego. You know what I mean? And it kind of runs counter to the sense that we have from reality TV, from food television, from celebrity television, that, like, no, I want to be this big shot. It's like, A, you can work your entire career, work your ass off, and never be that big mm-hmm. shot. You know what I mean? Like, for every, you know thousand kids that play you know basketball how many are going to be lebron james you know what i mean like tiny tiny proportion so it's unrealistic in a way um even speaking for my compatriots from my season of master chef of the 22 of us or 30 of us that got on the show how many of us are doing professional food stuff now not very many i was actually curious how many are yeah. are there anybody from that season that have actually gone on and, and been successful underneath the yeah, hospitality to, umbrella to kind of different degrees um some of them honestly you know wanted their 15 minutes of fame went back to their old lives some of them wanted the experience kind of went back to their old lives some of them made some attempts at it but what i realized when i came home was like even though that experience was so crazy and so unique the minute I got home to Lexington, I realized, okay, now the real work begins. I'm going to have this very finite eight weeks of notoriety of being on this national television show, right? I can let that pass. Like, once the show is over, I'm going to be a footnote mm-hmm. in the history of anything, right? Mm-hmm. So I have this limited window to build something with that notoriety. My foot is in the door now. I can pull that foot out and let that door shut. And just be done with it and go back to my old life. That's not what I wanted to do. I knew I had that foot in the door. I was going to push that door wide open and take whatever opportunities I had. Awesome. Uh, so typically during the earlier part of the interview, I'm finding out who you worked for, what you learned from different mentors. Uh, but you, uh, you kind of got into this industry. You kind of took a yeah. like a, a backdoor entry into the, yeah. the, the industry. But you also got to surround yourself briefly with some pretty big influences in the industry like Gordon Ramsay and uh, Joe Bassianich and I can never remember that other guy's name uh, Graham Elliott yeah Graham Elliott um, so I mean you, you you can't call them your mentor but at the same time you got to witness who they were how they were yeah. how they acted any lessons from those people who are extremely successful in this industry uh, that you can draw from that experience uh, what's interesting is I think the lessons I learned from those guys and from being on the show wasn't so much about food it was more about, uh, in a subtle way, and I don't think I understood it at the time, but it was about brand building. Because um, one of the biggest questions people would ask me is, like, is Gordon Ramsay really like that? And I would say yes and no. Uh, he's not fake on that show, just like he's not fake on Hell's Kitchen or any of the other shows. He's an amplified, specific version or one-dimensional version of himself. Mm-hmm. When they yelled cut and they were resetting cameras and he would chit-chat with us, he was like, a normalish guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? But when the cameras were on, he was hard ass Gordon Ramsay that was going to chew you out. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I realized that too. Like one of the other questions they asked us was, uh, or people would ask me, would be like, were you ever coached? Do they tell you what to say? And they said, no, we were never coached, but 
they would always say, be the biggest version of yourself. Yes, I actually wrote that down and I put a little star next to it because uh, yeah. I think that is a huge life lesson. When you're when you're getting uh, into whatever you're doing, be the, the biggest version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Like know who you are, get clarity on who you are, what your essence is, and whatever that that thing that you have, your it factor. Make yeah. sure that's at the surface and and lean into that thing. When you're when you're creating your own thing, whether it's a business, whether you're going to be a performer. Uh, whether you're opening a restaurant, um, I think a really, really important thing is like, who are you? What do you serve? Why do you serve it? Who do you want to serve it to? Like all those the, those identity questions. If you just come into it saying, I want to open a restaurant and make the most money possible. Okay, what do people like to eat? Burgers? Okay, I'm going to do burgers. You're not going to succeed. You know, you're not going to succeed pandering because ultimately people are going to see through that. They're not. They're not going to see the personality. They're not going to see the drive and the what's the mission statement. You know. So with this whole like kind of be the biggest version of yourself. When I was approached to do uh, a restaurant here, and so we're in uh, the barn food hall, which is this great big food hall with multiple vendors, and we're all local restaurants in here, right? Do you mind if we tap the brakes before getting to that point? Go for it. Uh, because I, I want to stay chronological, and I feel like there's a bunch of stuff here uh, in between. So I'm going to make sure we come back to be, be big and then how they approached you, and that will be our, like, our, yeah. our cue. Yeah. Uh, but I want to know, so after you got done with MasterChef, um, what's going on in your life? Like, Were you down, or were you kind of like, okay, I, I gave it a crack, I got some... You know, some some press. I built my my following. My brand is growing. What, what was going through your mind? It was definitely uh, building at, at that time. My brand was you know it was Dan Wu because everybody knew the name, uh, and it was culinary evangelist. It was what I called myself, especially when I started doing my podcast because my my uh, it's it's a semi ironic name because uh, I'm an atheist. I'm a non believer, uh, but what I realized is I evangelize with fervor, with a, a zealot's you know zeal about food and good food and what good cooking and good food can do for us in terms of health, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, understanding, and in terms of just making our lives more interesting and better, you know what I mean, more flavorful. Um, So I was doing a lot of small private gigs. So a typical gig would be somebody approaching me and saying, hey, my husband's 50th birthday is coming up. I want to invite 20 people. Will you make a dinner for us? You know, figure out a menu together. Uh, it was a lot of that stuff, which was really, really fun, really great. Uh, it changed every single time. Uh, it was uh, fairly small. I think the biggest one I did was a um, it was a wedding, and it was only because it was a friend. And it was like 80 or 90 people. We did some barbecue. Uh, but otherwise, it was like dinner parties for 10, 20 people where I got to not only serve them, cook them the food, serve them the food in their homes, but also like talk to them about the food and like, here's what this sauce is all about, and here's what I did with it, and you know, got to engage with them, which was a, a big part of what I love to do. So just kind of building that uh, slowly. And, you know, as you know, with honestly, any freelance kind of gig, like you're scraping it together. You're constantly hustling for that stuff. You know, come January, February, where it's doldrums for the entire industry, like I was suddenly like, oh, crap, I have no gigs now. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody's hiring me right now. And, you know, for a moment before I realized it was an industry-wide thing, I was like, what happened? Like, where did everybody go? Do, is there are people talking bad about me? Like, yeah. what, right? And then I realized, like, oh, talking to other restaurateurs, like, no, this is this. We're yeah. we're gonna you know tighten our belts and you know wait for March. Yeah. So, uh, what were you learning about 
uh, I guess at this point, you're continuing to grow your brain. You're talking about being big. Were you, were you intentionally growing an email list? Were you trying to build something where one day you could potentially have a, a list of people to market something to? Was there anything like that going through your mind, or were you just doing you at this point? I, I didn't really think that consciously about it or that long-term, to be frank, because um, I, I don't think at that time I had an end goal. Like I said, I wasn't working towards a restaurant. I wasn't working towards a particular thing. So I was doing all this stuff, and then I picked up gigs at different restaurants just for experience mainly. Uh, and I worked probably the longest, uh, about a year for a, um, a catering company in town called Apiary, really high-end, amazing food uh, catering. Learned a lot from there. Um, but most of my gigs came from pure word of mouth, friends of friends, uh, somebody who had attended one of my other dinners as a guest, you know, would get me for a different gig. Um, and then, you know, with the notoriety and the sort of the aftermath of Master Chef too, a lot of, you know, TV stations and people wanted, you know, you know, wanted my time or wanted my name on their event, you know, so I would do like fundraising events for people and stuff. And it also made me realize too, that, um, having that level of notoriety name recognition was a great way to parlay it into doing good works for the community as mm-hmm. well. So that if, Somebody is having a, you know, benefit dinner for a particular nonprofit and they could say, like, our guest chef is Dan Wu. That's a draw for them to raise money for their event. So it was kind of an amazing realization to think like, oh, this is I'm not just in it for me. I can extend my brand and give back to the community at the same time. And that's one of my other probably mantras is is uh, do well by doing good. Yes. Yeah. That there's no there's no conflict there. That uh, I think these days people are much more conscious about what kind of businesses they support, not just in terms of their own business practices or price or quality or what you get, but also like what does this company or brand represent? Do you know? Do I believe in the kind of stuff they they do? And if you do, people will support you on like a whole different level. You know what I mean? Like there are you know businesses in town that are so connected to the community that when people talk about loving them. Often they're not even talking about their products or services. They're just like, hey, I love Wessex Brewing because they're like the community activity room for Lexington. Or I love uh, a cup of Commonwealth. And they may not even bring up their coffee. They just talk about like how involved they are in the community and how they just love supporting them. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point right now. And there's kind of like this movement going on. I like to call it a movement because I hate the word trend. And I hope it's not a trend because trends come and go. Yep. But there's this movement happening where people want to align themselves with not just the brand. Uh, well, yes, the brand, but deeper than that, like what the brand actually is. Right. And people are getting really good at smelling the bullshit and knowing when there's a brand that exists for the purposes it says it exists and it lives those values every day. And people want to be aligned with those types of brands. Yeah. Um, so you know what you said, uh, doing well by doing good. I like to say doing good is good business nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm so happy you put uh, emphasis on that. Um, so just to put even more emphasis, find companies that share your values like you did. Align yourself with them. Work with those companies. And you are going to be tying yourself, your, your brand to other brands. Brands alignment is huge. Yeah. So really be conscious of that. Uh, any other thoughts before we move on to the next nah, you said topic? It. Cool. All right. Uh, I'm also curious, were you just getting gigs by getting referrals? Was it all word of mouth? Or were you at this point, did you have like a schedule where like you would host and like invite people now? Okay. No, I did. Um, before, let me 
think of the timeline here. Before I did MasterChef, I had actually a series of uh, lunches at my ho- house called Formidable, and it was spelled Four Mid Table. And it was I had a, a, a long dining table that seated six, and I had this thing. It was so it was, it was uh, semi, not formal, not professional. Uh, I think I had I was charging like ten, fifteen bucks, something fairly inexpensive, just to cover my costs. And I would invite, um, or actually I would have signups and say like I've got four seats for this date. Uh, I would make whatever meal I felt like making, and then. <laughs> Uh, just to challenge myself, this was before MasterChef, just to challenge myself, I had people bring mystery ingredients that I had to use in the next meal. Mm. So it would just be like random oh, that's cool. challenging stuff. I think one time somebody brought me uh, um, Tootsie Rolls, which, by the way, don't melt very well. <laughs> I tried it and I ruined one of my pans. Oh, man. Um, but I did that kind of for a little while as a way to sort of just be out of the box and challenge myself and get people interested and and people started like waiting like when's the next one when's the next one and it was kind of fun yeah um so i I am kind of curious uh you mentioned that you uh did go and do some side hustles you got some gigs working for other restaurants doing catering uh any big lessons about the, the restaurant business surrounding yourself with some of these greats in the industry within your community um It made me realize, so when I was working for Apiary Catering, it made me realize um, how many moving parts there are to it. I think that's the other illusion or delusion that sometimes up-and-coming chefs or would-be restaurateurs run into is like, let's let's suppose you are the best cook in the town, in in the city, right? Let's Mm -hmm. say you make this dish or these dishes like better than anyone else. Does that mean you can have a successful restaurant? Not remotely. (laughs) Not remotely. Yeah. I have seen uh, places with decent food that just kill it because they know their margins, they know their labor, they know their market, they social media like crazy and do really well. And I know chefs that are brilliant who are struggling to hang on because they don't know all these other elements. Yep. So it gave me a glimpse into that even though I was essentially a prep and line cook for, for uh, this catering company, but I got to see uh, how the place was managed, how they you know managed their ordering all this so i got that sort of inside look uh what that pacing was like uh staffing you know all those different elements and if anything i think those kind of experiences should i wouldn't say deter but like give you a real like hard lesson on like this shit is not as easy as you think it's not remotely it's a reality check for sure exactly uh and you, you said that you didn't have the intention to ever open your own place. So when you were going to work for these people, were you just going to l- learn more about food, to surround yourself with other food, passionate food people? Or was there any intent to kind of pick up on some of the business aspect too? Uh, I think the, the pickup was unintentional. Uh, I definitely consciously wanted to pick up um, pure culinary cooking skills, you know, um, in terms of whether it was knife skills, making sauces, whatever, those kind of, you know, uh, one of the things they did really well uh, that I love doing that I don't get to do much now with my fast casual restaurant is uh, like past appetizers, like beautiful little one biters, just be- gorgeously garnished, super delicate, uh, that kind of stuff. But I learned a level of finesse from that. I learned about presentation. Uh, I think the other business aspects of it kind of came inadvertently um, through osmosis. Um, like I said, I didn't really have a, a fixed goal at the time. Part of it was gaining experience. Part of it was just paying the rent. You know what I mean? Like I needed a job to, you know, to, to continue moving forward. Um, scraping together gig to gig was not enough. You know, at some point I was 
you know, I sold plasma at some point. I drove, <laughs> I drove for Uber. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you do what you got to do. I was driving for Uber just before I left to come on this road trip, man. You yeah. got to do what you got to do yeah, to get exactly. by for sure. Um, so you're also hosting the podcast at this point. Uh, any intentionality behind that? Was that part of bro- growing the brand or were you just following your passion and following your curiosity, learning from these people? A little bit of both. Um, I did a lot of college radio when I was in college here at UK, uh, which I really enjoyed. And then when I came back um, and started in the sort of whole chef mode, I'll tell you one of the things that kind of kickstarted it was, you know, when I got back and MasterChef started airing and I started, you know, making little local TV appearances and then somebody would say like, hey, we're doing this fundraising event. We're going to have this chef, this chef, this chef and you as our guest chefs. And at first I was like, holy shit, like these are established restaurateur chefs mm-hmm. and I'm this guy that just came off a TV show yeah, and now I'm in their league. So the imposter syndrome was oh, real, yeah. real heavy for a mm-hmm. while there. Um, but what I realized once I met these people, they were all super gracious, super nice. Who Lexington, were these people? Huh? Who were, who were some of these people? Uh, chefs like Mark Jensen, Jonathan Lundy, Jeremy Ashby, Weta Michael. Um, Past guests just, on the show. Yeah. Just got to meet her the other day. Give her a big old hug. Yeah. yeah. Well, and these honestly, like, you know, like almost every chef I name now, like, has at some point been on my show. Yeah. Um, so having talked to them, and, and I will say, you know, just to to our horn here lexington has kind of an amazingly cohesive collaborative and like um nurturing Mm. food scene like sometimes i hear other people coming from other towns how how cutthroat it is and how there's all this drama and here it's like you know you what you'll see is somebody putting up a kickstarter for their restaurant and you'll see some of the biggest donors are other restaurateurs Mm -hmm. you know what i mean that we're always encouraging that you know, I couldn't have done this place without people like Weta and Tao and, you know, other people, uh, Ilias. Doug Bolin um, was just over here the other day, who's yeah. an, who I'm talking to after you. Yeah. Who's the director of operations for the Weta restaurant. Yes. Uh, what, what I said the other day, and I mean this, is I want to one day be the Doug Mullins to some young whippersnapper <laughs> and like you know the other day literally like i my ice machine was down and i was frustrated and i was trying to get on with tech support and he was like let me bring my shop back because what happens with cold water is there's this little goo stuff that forms and it adheres to the limestone in our water so he came over 10 minutes later my problem was fixed Seriously. and i'm like Come on. You're not even giving it that enough justice because he was literally sitting <laughs> Indian style on the floor. Yeah. And this is he uh, there's no connection between these two businesses. He had yeah. n- he had no uh, need to come yeah. over here. We're neighbors. Exactly. We're I'm neighbors sorry. and sort of colleagues in that yeah, way. Exactly. Um, uh, but that's just a perfect example of, you know, it's not about me, it's not about you, yeah. it's about us, it's about yeah. we. Not even just our restaurant, but yeah. our community of restaurants and helping each other out. Yeah. Uh, uh, I tell you, that during the first month that we were open, when we were, you know, slammed with that crazy first opening business, and this is my first restaurant, so, you know, we were winging it. You know, I had planned and sketched out and you know, put this plan and the cook line, everything together as best I can. But, you know, then you go into battle and it's a whole different ball game, right? Uh, and there were days where I was just like exhausted out of my mind, sitting in here, just telling myself like I just like wanting to cry out of fatigue. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that level, just sitting there. And then, of course, I made the mistake of reading Yelp reviews on a day that I was like emotionally uh. tired. <laughs> And then Weta Michael, who she's the queen of Lexington cuisine. She has multiple restaurants. She's been in this business for decades. She comes over. She sees me. She puts a hand on my shoulder. She, like, 
closes my laptop and she was like, don't worry about it. Put your head down, do your thing. When we first opened this restaurant or that restaurant, this was a shit show and things yeah. happened and we ran out of food and people quit. And it's just like, you'll get through it. It's fine. And hearing that from her, yeah. you're like, okay, yeah, okay, I'm okay then. I'm okay. If she had that much trouble with that kind of experience, you know, and that level of, of um, respect and, and prestige that she has in town, and she runs into the stuff, and it's not easy for her yes. either, then okay. There's then so I'm much, okay. There's so much, like, weight to that, to knowing that even the people who look at, who seem like they're at the top of the mountain, maybe they, 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 they possibly could be, but they had to get there like yes. you had to get there, mm-hmm. too. And they had to go through the shit like you had to go through the yeah. shit, and they came out the other side. Yeah. And often it's just who's willing to go, who's willing to keep on showing up. Yeah, right? yeah. And, um, I, and I want to be the Doug Mullins. I want to be the Weed of Michael for somebody else coming nice. up because, you know what I mean? It's just like it, it takes a lot. It mm-hmm. takes a lot to get there. And I think, you know, it takes a village. And, and I'm glad I live in this place where um, where the community is so supportive. I'm so happy we went down this rabbit hole and started talking about this. But I think we got here by talking about you uh, and you were surrounding yourself with all these restaurateurs as a host of your own podcast. Yeah. So you're kind of doing what, I, what I'm doing, learning from these or yes. like surrounding yourself with these incredible restaurateurs on a very micro level like in your community in, in, in uh, Kentucky. Uh, what were you picking up from these people, talking from them, learning about them? Uh, you're more focused on the food, correct, with this podcast? Yeah. Um, I kind of, you know... I guess the theme or the motif of the my show was just about the food scene in central Kentucky. So I not only talked to chefs and restaurateurs, but um, butchers, wine people, bartenders, um, farmers, uh, educators, people who work for the UK Agriculture Department, um, professors of sociology who taught, you know, angles about food and stuff, um, food truck owners, just all different aspects of it just to kind of get a sense of why people do what they do, how do they do it. You know, people who make, you know, tea in Lexington, um, people who make granola in, in Lexington. And it gives you a, a really interesting overall sense of how people get into businesses, how they convert their passions to the, the real nitty-gritty everyday you know, realism of like, oh, you know, I, I knew how to make granola. I didn't know how to balance books. You know what I yep. mean? All those kind of things. So it was always very illuminating. And then as I got closer to, you know, opening this restaurant was about a year and a half sort of from conception to opening the doors. Um, in that process, once I started thinking about my own logistics, um, then I, I mean, my ulterior motive talking to another chef restaurateur was like, tell me about when you opened such and such. Yeah. Like, how did that go? Like, how did you manage, you know, without getting too wonky, but it was like, a lot of like, how do you keep good people? Like, yeah. you guys have a great reputation for customer service. How do you keep great people? Uh, I did one episode where I had um, Tao Green from Crank and Boom, Salvador Sanchez from Cup of Commonwealth, and Jeff Newman from Blue Door Smokehouse, three of the, the probably the best reviewed and, and most respected um, institutions in town. And, uh, and I, uh, I pulled up bad Yelp reviews for them to read <laughs> to each other. Oh, man. And that was just, like, so entertaining. But, like, we had a whole conversation kind of roundtable about, like, how do you how do you get good people? How do you um, create that culture of service? And how do you deal with complaints and bad situations and unreasonable people and shitty reviews? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and those are all things I legitimately wanted to know. So what did you learn? Uh, 
I learned that a big part of it, and and I haven't read a lot of it. I've read a few articles uh, with uh, Danny Meyer from New York, where his attitude, you know, the the conventional wisdom is that the customer is always right, so that you're catering to them. He puts his focus on his staff, and he hires well, treats his staff really, really well, and that kind of trickles down to、mm-hmm. that good service. That if you you can tell when you walk into a place where the employees hate their job.、Mm-hmm. Because it translates to bad service,、oh, yeah. pure and simple. Yeah. Right. So if you give them the sense of like, hey, we're in the hospitality industry, and that's the thing that we keep emphasizing is like, it's about the food, but it's beyond that. Yeah. You know, I've been to restaurants where the food has been subpar, but they fixed the situation,、mm-hmm. they made it right, they gave me hospitality,、mm-hmm. and I will go back. Yeah. And there are places where I've had amazing food with just like shit service and like. Attitude and、it's、people. It's the energy,、care. right? Yeah, man. Yeah, you can't hide that energy. It's either I I effed up and I genuinely I want to make this right, and it's coming from a real place. And when you pick up on that energy, you、yeah. could do the worst thing ever. You could insult somebody's mother by accident, and you know, as、yeah. long as they know that, like, oh my god, what did I do? Like, I want to make it right. Maybe don't go around insulting people's、yeah. mothers, but、yeah. you know what I'm saying, like. Uh, you, that that authenticity, that real genuine energy,、uh, even if you don't want to be there, that energy of like I'm just going through the motions right yeah, now. Yeah,、uh, I mean, it's, I, it's contagious. I ran into that a little bit, you know, with my my staff. Most of my staff are pretty young, and in fact, I hired、uh, several teenagers on their first jobs,、mm-hmm. uh, which is good and bad. Yeah,、uh, it's bad in the sense that I have to literally teach them everything. Like they've never worked a job, so it's、yeah. just like, no, you do have to show up on time. <laughs> if you can't, you gotta call me or text me. Um, but the the good part of it is they take everything I say as gospel. I don't have to fix any old mistakes.、Yep. They're not bringing here, coming here with like a veteran's kind、mm-hmm. of attitude. Clean slate.、Um, but one of the things,、uh, you know, and I've been rotating people through、uh, my place's fast casual counter service, where literally there's no front of house, back of house. So everybody does everything. Everybody runs register. Everybody preps. Everybody cooks. Everybody serves. And obviously, not everybody is good at everything, right? I have certain employees who are really gregarious and outgoing, and I have some that you can't get a word out of them, but they're great to put their head down and prep. But I wanted to rotate everybody through all the stations just to see how they would do. And you know, sometimes I would get somebody be like, "Oh, I'm just not in a good mood" or whatever, and I said, "Well, look at look at Kate over there. Like, she's not a people person." But she'll run register like a champ because she fakes it. Yeah, <laughs> and you just got to do what you got to do. You can't、yeah. just tell me like, "Oh, I'm not good at cutting scallions, so I'm not going to do it." Like, no, you're、yeah. still going to do it. Yeah, you're going to get better at it. And I tell them every time they come up to me and be like, "Hey, I'm not really good at this. Great, I'm going to make you do it more now." Yeah, let's、right? get you better. Yeah. yeah. So, awesome. Okay, so.、Uh- You kind of dived into some of the big lessons you learned from these people、uh, that you were surrounding yourself with, learning from them.、Uh, the town of Lexington, or the, the, the folks that were putting together this、um, this complex, which is called the, the remind me again. I'm sorry. So the shopping center itself is called the Summit at Fritz Farm.、Right. Uh, it used to be an old、uh, farm here called Fritz Farm、uh, for ages,、uh, and then the building that we're in is called the Barn Food Hall, which is this、uh, beautiful 40, 50 foot. Um, structure that's、um, basically made to look like a barn. In fact, they took、uh, reclaimed wood from the original barns、that's、and、cool. put it on the facades on the outside. So we're in here with、uh, six or seven restaurants and vendors and one retail. There's a bar,、uh, and we're all together under one roof. And one of the things that they were really adamant about from day one was they wanted everybody in here to be local. Yes, there's no Chipotle, there's no McDonald's, anything like that inside the physical space inside the barn. Yeah, yeah. So it's really cool that you bring that up because as I First, got here.、Uh, 
uh, I was coming here to introduce myself to you to try to recruit you as a guest on the show. And I'm driving around. I'm like, oh, this is a really beautiful space. And I'm looking. I'm like, okay, Shake Shack. Okay, that's you know a big company. Uh-huh. Uh, we got uh, there was a couple other. I think I honestly a lot of like retail corporate retail spots. Yes. And I was like, I really hope they stayed local with the food. Uh, and I saw a couple brands I recognize for the food, but for the most part, they, they, you guys are priming, you are, you know, you are putting the money back into the community with the space, which yeah. is, which is really great. Um, do you want to talk to that a little bit more? Or? Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, when they first approached me, um, kind of out of nowhere, it was a consulting company that was working for the, uh, the developers and the landlords. And they came to me and said, Hey, we're, we're developing this food hall concept here in Lexington in this big shopping center. We would love to talk to you about filling that Asian slash noodle niche. Mm-hmm. And when we first sat down and conversed, my first thoughts honestly were like, why do I want to be in a food court in the suburbs? <laughs> like it did not sound like me. Yeah. And then they said, well, here are the people we're talking to. We're talking to Pasture. We're talking to Athenian Grill. We're talking to Crank and Boom. We're talking to Smithtown. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah. Like these are all my friends. These are all uh, people I respect who have um, growing uh, brands. Um, and it becomes one of those things that like if you have a couple of friends you trust – and they call you up and say, hey, let's go. Yeah. You don't ask where. You'd be like, cool, okay. let's, do it. let's do it. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's what it was. So it was like, oh, okay, Wida and Ilias and Tao and these guys are on board. I'm on board because that's the company I want to be in. Beautiful. Uh, so you get on board. At this point, do you have a concept? Do you know what you want to do? Like, how did that vision of Atomic Noodle come into frame? Yeah. So what's interesting is um, when I first started doing small scale catering and the private parties and stuff. It was kind of all over the map is whatever people wanted. We would do French, we would do continental, we would do Italian, we would do, you know, Asian barbecue, whatever. Uh, and then I started also doing a lot of pop-ups. There are a lot of um, street markets and street festivals here, like night market and warehouse block party, where it's just, you know, like a street fair, right? And you would pitch a tent or pull up your truck and, and do food vending. So I started doing that. And I realized as I started doing that, that I was more and more focused towards kind of street food stuff, stuff like tacos, stuff like noodles. Um, and the more I did those kind of events, the more I kind of honed in on ramen. And it's funny, too, because uh, a ramen bowl is what got me my apron on MasterChef. Oh, cool. Um, so it kind of all ties together. Yeah. And it kind of ties into my childhood as well. Uh, and so when they came to me, um, the, the the recruiters came to me upon recommendations of Wida and Tao, which... Also, if people you respect recommend you, you better not fuck it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's just like they're putting their reputations on the line vouching for you. Uh, and at the time, I was just doing these little restaurant pop-ups. Um, there was this space um, that I did, a little restaurant pop-up. So it was like a 30-seater where I would sell tickets for it, do like a prefix menu. And I started just doing ramen and little appetizers and stuff. So it was well before they approached me, but it was this like proto-atomic ramen situation happening so when they approached me it was based on some of that knowledge so they kind of already approached me thinking like hey you should do ramen Mm -hmm. and i was like yeah i should do ramen yeah uh and to kind of tie back to what we were saying earlier the star we put next to be big right so you're doing yourself at this point you're doing your brand this is who you are and you're and i love when i see restaurants uh and i hate the word concept because i but it's a con- yeah. It is a concept, no, it's a, but at the same right time, word. Yeah. it's a vision. I like to use the word vision of what you want to be. Yeah. And it, it, and I love when I see uh, 
restaurateurs or chefs creating a, a vision of that is something that's just an extension of who they are. Yeah. Right. Because I feel like a concept is something that's separate. It's like creative, but it's yeah. not like it's just like oh, like I'm gonna the, the Amazon rainforest. Like, right. Sure. Screw that. Like it's yeah. How is that a reflection of who you are? Unless you're from the Amazon, right? Right. So when you this is literally an extension of who you are. It's, it's your story. It's it's your passion. What you love. Uh, the the comic scene, like the 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 sci-fi and like yeah. all that stuff. Like yeah. it's literally like you as a restaurant. Yeah. Um, talk to us why that's so important. Um, when I've when I first started getting serious about the idea and, and talking to the developers, I said, okay, I need to come up with a name. Uh, and I literally just researched like best ramen in America. And I went down all these lists. Right. And it seemed like 80% of those ramen names had a Japanese word in the title. So it was either uh, a specific type of ramen or a region of Japan or a person's name and all this stuff. And I was thinking, um, in in long term, and and I'll use the word concept um, in terms of a brand and a concept. I wanted something that could be scalable and that could grow way past Lexington, way past me. And the thing that I think a lot about is culture and ethnicity and food and assimilation and, and all those issues. Um, there are barriers to people approaching ethnic food, right? Um, barriers of just like they've never tried it, they've never heard of it, they can't pronounce the words, all those sort of things. So when I started thinking about that, I had that in mind. I was like, do I want a Japanese word? And like ramen already says that to me. So let me think of something else. And the first two things I came up with were kaiju, which is Japanese for giant monster, uh, and atomic, which is kind of related in that whole like atomic yeah. age comic booky thing. And then once atomic came along, it really kind of gelled. And then I kind of just went headfirst into, you know, at first it was just going to be called Atomic Ramen with some bright colors. And then I was like, you know what? I want characters for this brand. I want a superhero team. So I worked with a, a local comic book artist named uh, Bryce O'Quay, and we developed these characters oh, so cool. uh, from it because I wanted something to represent them. Um, and then I was just like, eventually somebody, I think, said to me, like, oh, it's a superhero-themed um, restaurant? And I was like, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, at first I resisted because, like, theme restaurant sounds terrible, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like you're thinking about, uh, what is it, medieval times or yeah. something. But then I was like, no, it's a superhero-themed restaurant. Like, everything that I'm about, I love pop culture, I love geek culture, I love, you know, Comic-Cons, um, superheroes, monsters, yeah. robots, all that kind of stuff. So it kind of really, really embraced it. So our entire aesthetic is that bright, poppy, comic booky. I've got, you know, little Pops figures all over the place. Mm -hmm. All of my art on the wall is Samurais and Darth Vader and, you know. Yeah, and I'll, t I'll be taking pictures of those things, I'm sure, before I get out of here so you guys can see what it looks like. Um, so when I hear you say this, though, I, I, I just come back to be big. And, like, you know, when, the, when you were talking to these producers are saying just be whatever you are but just be big like whatever it is that you are like bring that forward bring that to the front of what you're doing and that sounds like what you're doing with your restaurant yeah yeah uh, uh one of the other things that they taught me uh in all, you know there are all these talking head interviews during the show right and they said answer in complete sentences so even when we were cooking and gordon ramsay would run over and say what are you making and you wouldn't say gnocchi 
you'd say, well, I'm hand rolling some potato gnocchi and, and, and I'm going to, you know, pair it with this sauce and make it a little bit spicy. I'm going to chop up some sausage here. And so you build a narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I was very cognizant of, of building this brand too is like, what am I? Am I just a place where you can get a bowl of noodles or am I this whole conceptual thing of like, it's all about fun and comic books and irreverence and, you know, all of my specials are themed or named after superheroes and characters and stuff like that. So that idea of go big, it's just like you wrap yourself around this thing and just like, let's just go hog wild with it. You know what I mean? Like, don't be shy about it. And I think it gives people something to latch onto beyond just the food because, you know, soon, hopefully in Lexington, you know, there may be two, three, five, seven ramen restaurants. You know what I mean? And I'm okay with that. I'm still going to hopefully stand out because I'm a tonic ramen yeah. and I'm my own identity. Beautiful. Um, so we learned a lot about how you came across your brand and what matters to you, some of the values. What about some of the actual like boring stuff that you learned, <laughs> some of the challenges yeah. uh, of starting a business? Like, What were some of the, the things that you faced that you, you kind of struggled with? Um, boy, uh, I come from, you know, as, as a... As a Asian American, a Chinese American who came to the States as a kid, my parents were utter failures as tiger parents. Like they did not really push me through school. They didn't make me do all this stuff. I wasn't, you know, uh, you know, summa cum laude student with a 4.0 and, you know, academic team and played tennis, none of that stuff. So I blame my parents partly, (laughs) but I kind of grew up as a young person uh, lacking a lot of discipline and I kind of you know, it, it informed to some degree my winding career path, too, that I kind of just did what I felt like. And I realized doing a restaurant, like, there are things that I'm good at. Uh, and also, I think entering this business at, at my age, at you know, I'm 44 this year. At my age, entering this business, I have a very keen awareness of what I'm good at, what I'm inclined towards, what I'm bad at, and what I'm not inclined towards. And being able to seek the help to cover those bases. Uh, I want to understand those things, but I know I'm never going to have a great time crunching numbers. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I would rather sit there and develop like what's, what's the next dish? What's the, what am I going to do for this new broth to make it right? Those are creative elements. What are my, my next marketing and promotional um, schemes that I'm going to promote on Instagram? What's a fun giveaway that I can do? What's a fun tie in I can do with comic con. Like I understand myself with those kind of things. I love training people. I love teaching. Um, you know, do I love doing the schedule? No, but it has to be done. It's a pain, you know, every week I got to remind people, like send me your availability, juggle people. This person's sick. That person's out. You know, it's, that's not fun, Yeah. but you got to do it and you have to do it thoughtfully. Like, okay, I need a strong lead, you know, for lunch and I got to have this person and this person for dinner, you know, all those kind of things. Um, you know, figuring out your food costs, juggling, you know, stuff. Do I, does anybody like calling tech support or a rep and saying like my ice machine's down? When are you going to no. send people in? <laughs> right. Nobody enjoys that. Uh, so you, you kind of pointed out, know your strengths, surround yourself uh, with people who are strong where you're weak. Uh, what about uh, getting the capital to get started? Cause I saw that you had a Kickstarter going. Um, yeah. The, was that a challenge, an early challenge, getting that initial capital to... Yeah, so the the Kickstarter was more of a, a cherry on top kind of situation. I always looked at the Kickstarter as um, sort of like a bonus, kind of get me past the finish line. But it was also uh, as much 
a, a way of promoting the business and getting people aware of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's a smart idea for a restaurant um, to put up a Kickstarter as your only means of financing. I think it's a. Uh, I think you're going to be in a lot of trouble there because yeah. also you know most a lot of Kickstarter campaigns you know are ten, twenty, fifteen thousand dollars, whatever. Um, you're not going to open a restaurant for fifteen thousand dollars, right? So, but can you put a kick? Can you, as somebody who's done pop-ups or even a food truck, can you put up a, a Kickstarter for one hundred fifty thousand dollars? No, not going to happen. You're only going to fail, right? Yeah. So you gotta you gotta shoot for a goal that you know you can hit. Mm-hmm. You want to succeed and kind of pass it. Uh, and you know, Kickstarters are always tied to uh, rewards and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's a great way to get people excited. Mm-hmm. So once we're open, hey, come to now. You can come to the uh, the friends and family opening. Now you can come and get the swag and you know get our hats and shirts and so discounts. So you didn't need the money that you got from that Kickstarter. That was it was for you. Maybe a little extra. Why not? You can never have too much when you're trying to open a business. Correct. Like a little cushion. Uh, but more than anything else, that was marketing. Yeah strategy yeah it, it was it's definitely twofold um uh the the majority of my financing came from uh investors uh and that's a that's another tough thing too which i'd never done how much um, were you trying to get to get started if you don't mind asking uh we raised 200 okay yeah which is, honestly uh is you know the way i mean you're, you're really scaling at this point like you're still a small like you don't have like your own uh, like dining space, like, right? You know, you're sharing the space. It's a shared space. Uh, how much did you need to get started? Did you say? Well, that's. Um, I raised that based on, and this is another thing. Like going into this as a novice, like I honestly did not know how much I needed. Yeah. You know what I mean to to figure it out. So the uh, the consulting company uh, named Rebies out of Dallas, um, they actually really worked with us. Um, and I told them from the get go, like I was like, if we're gonna do this. I'm a first timer. I'm going to need some hand holding. You guys yeah. good with that? Yeah. You know, I'm going to ask you dumb questions. Yeah. So they helped me with a development budget, and the the great thing, you know, with that is we ended up over budgeting, and we came in well under budget to get this place open, mm-hmm. uh, which means I can return some of the money to my investors mm-hmm. right away and say like, hey, now your risk is mitigated even yeah. further, right? Yeah. But yeah, the uh, once I had those numbers, then it was approaching people and i was like how many rich friends do i have you know how many you know uh i used to play a lot of poker and one of the lessons you learn is that it's not about can you afford the buy-in to this table it's about can you afford to lose it can you afford to rebuy a couple of times so if you're playing at a at a table where it's a hundred dollars to buy in you can't sit down with a hundred dollars and that's all you have in your pocket you're destined for failure right yeah. there if you sit down at a table that requires $100 with five in your pocket, then you're okay because you can weather some storms. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like uh, working capital, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if you sit down with five and say, like, am I going to be hurting when I lose the five? And if the answer is like, yeah, nah, it's okay, mm-hmm. then you're good. Beautiful. If you feel like you're going to hurt, don't sit at that table. Go sit at a smaller table. Yes, so, yes. So when I was talking to investors, too, <laughs> it's like, you know, if I said to you right now, like, hey, can I have 20 bucks and you may or may not get it back? You might be like, okay, sure, right? But if I say, hey, can I have 200 bucks and you may or may not get it back? You'd be a little leery, yeah. right? And so I had to find the right person for the right level um, because, you know, restaurant investments are risky. You know what I mean? You're not going to, uh, some you, A, you may never see it back if the restaurant fails. B, you may not see it back in a very fast fashion, mm-hmm. right? And and see, hopefully, you know, like you do get 
you do get it back and you can continue this relationship with people. And that's my thing too. Like it's a long-term relationship. So, you know, I structured my investment, um, my investor um, contracts as I wanted to front end uh, all the repayments back to them. Like mm -hmm. I'm not making very much right now at all, mm -hmm. but I will down the road. Yes. That's, that's the goal. So I would rather, so if you were one of my investors and you invested an X amount of money with me, I would rather get you paid up as soon as possible because what I'm looking at is down the road, if in a year or two, a spot opens up somewhere and we have another opportunity, be like, hey, Eric, remember the thing we did? Yeah. It's been pretty good so far, you, right? Yeah. And you're like 85% paid back, right, in a reasonable timeline. We got another thing. You want to kick in again? Let's do this again? Yeah. That's what I want. I want that long-term relationship with you instead of trying to make as much money as I can today. Beautiful. Oh, man, I got really excited there because I feel like so many people get in trouble because they have this vision of what they want to create. And it's it's good to have those visions. You don't need it tomorrow. That could be your 10-year vision. Yeah. Start where you can start right now where you're safe, where you can bounce back if you need to. And people get in so much trouble. They get so much yeah. debt um, for that ultimate vision. But I mean, even where you started, like you started with – the, well, I mean, like you kind of started with the Master Chef thing, which is kind of a, a hack, right? To like, yeah. you know, to get that massive following right away to like prime your career. But even then, you didn't go open a restaurant. Right. You did pop ups. Yeah. You know, you developed yeah. that following. You developed your brand. You've continued just yeah. to get your name out there. Awesome stuff, man. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Anything up to this point we haven't touched on uh, that you want to touch on before we go to the speed round? No, go for it. Beautiful. All right, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Payroll and benefits, it's hard. Sometimes it feels like a foreign language, especially for small businesses. I mean, you, you're too busy running your business. You don't have time to be an expert in all things taxes and regulations. That's why there's Gusto. Gusto is making a payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. PC Mag and Fit Small Business have called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses. Gusto will save you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run their payroll. Gusto is more efficient and reliable. Four out of five customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching to Gusto. People who succeed in this industry have access to systems and information, and Gusto will provide both. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash unstoppable. All right, guys, it's time to get real and answer this question honestly. Does the quality of your website match the quality of your restaurants? If the answer is no, you need to do something about it because 89% of your guests will go to your website before going to your restaurant. So you've got to make sure you're bringing it to all aspects of your business. And this is where Bento Box comes in. Not only will Bento Box help you deliver your brand and your story online, but it will help you 
leverage the full potential of the internet because websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that help you drive revenue. With Bento Box, easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events, plus way more directly from your website. Find out why Bento Box is trusted by thousands of restaurants around the world, including past and future guests like Suvla, Pizza Emily, 11 Madison Park, The Meatball Shop, and more. Head to getbento.com and make sure you mention Restaurants Unstoppable to get up to $1,500 off your initial setup. Okay, we're we're back. (laughs) And uh, before we do the speed round where we're just shooting the shit a little bit, talking, he's like, oh, I I got this great analogy uh, for... What was the analogy? Well, you said uh, you said before we started, do you need to go check on my team? And I said, and we're literally like five feet away from my stall. And uh, I remember I had read a uh, novel about Vietnam, the Vietnam War, called Matterhorn some years ago. And one of the things that they said in it was that uh, it was the lieutenant of a of a platoon, and he said that whenever he sends a squad out into the field. You know, as soon as they hit enemy contact, they would call him back and say, we need backup, we need backup. And he said he always ignores the first two calls. And if there was a third call, he would send reinforcements. Uh, and what that was is that usually, you know, first contact, they panic, but most of the time they could handle it. And to let them handle it is a um, is a kind of management philosophy that I like, too. So. I don't voluntarily go over there and say, hey, you guys good and you guys need help. They'll let me know. Yeah. And, and you know, half the time I ask them, they're fine. Even if they look like they're in the weeds or whatever, they're, they're handling it. Yeah. And I would rather them not rely on me to be able to, to handle it themselves. Yeah, they got to be able to figure it out. And that really reminds me of uh, something I picked up because uh, I was a commercial pilot. Uh, before doing this, I was a commercial pilot. So in aviation school at Daniel Webster, uh, they taught us, you know, if we had a question for our flight instructor, Hey, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the answer to this is. Like, they would say, and you, if you were to ask them, they, they would say to you, "I don't know." You, you tell me. It was always what they would say. Like, so, hey, I don't know the answer. What's the answer? I don't know. You tell me. And it's that their way of saying figure it figure out. Figure it yeah. out. Uh, here's the book. Know how to find the answer because I'm not going to be yeah. there all the time. And you, you might be in a situation where you're in the air and you need to figure it out. So you need to know where yeah. the stuff is. You need to know yeah. how to find the stuff. And then for me, developing this brand to um, my long-term idea with it is that if it's going to be scalable or growable, I can't be there a 24 hours a day and B, I can't be in two places at once. So I have to create systems and procedures yep. and recipes and manuals and all this stuff and, and really good training and really good management structure where they can handle this stuff themselves. Yep. And then I'm... You're grooming them. Yeah. And, and yep. then I can check in and look at that big picture. But I shouldn't have to, you know, a year down the road say like, hey, how come these dishes aren't done? Right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like not at that micro level. I should be looking at it. It's just like, you know what? Closings have not gone well whatever and then i talk to my manager and say what can we do to improve closings can we you know refigure the time can we do this differently whatever and then kind of go down from there beautiful awesome i'm happy we went deeper into that so the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success oh wow um i think uh you know it's that go big thing um I remember when somebody was asking me the other day, like, hey, we, we, you want to do this cross promotion with us and, you know, will you help me, you know, help us promote it? And I said, yeah, I don't do anything quietly. So everything I do, I want to do it like publicly and kind of loud. 
Yeah. Awesome. Uh, what's your biggest weakness? Oof. Uh, I think it used to be self-discipline. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely better now. Um, it's really juggling. Uh, I used to be the guy, and I still kind of am. I'm trying to recover. I used to be the guy that has like 15 ideas at once, and then I don't follow through with any of them. <laughs> and now I've been able to edit my brain a little bit better. So if I have, I don't even have 15 ideas. I have three, and I immediately put two of them away mm-hmm. or cross them off and say, we're going to work on this one. Nice. Uh, what's it, one question you ask or thing that you look for when you're growing that team? Um, huh. Uh, I guess I always am curious, especially with, you know, with restaurants, you get a lot of young staff. I kind of want to know like where they want to be in five, 10 years. And there's a part of me that doesn't want them to be here in five, 10 years. You know what I mean? Like, or if they're with me in five, 10 years, then they're managing a store or they're helping me open franchises Mm -hmm. somewhere. Like I don't, you know what I mean? Like I can't imagine wanting or having an hourly employee for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to know, like, well, what, what what do they want to do next? What do they want to learn from me? How can I help them get there? Beautiful. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Uh, biggest challenge, honestly, uh, you know, when, when we first opened the first couple of months, it was just like utter chaos and keeping up with it and just so many new things. For me, I, I'm an um, I'm a unrepentant neophyte or neophile, rather. Uh, where I just love new stuff all the time. So once the store is going and people kind of know their roles and we're just into day-to-day sales, it's a little easy to get complacent. So I want to keep myself creative, keep myself interested, and keep things kind of moving. Okay. Uh, How do you plan on doing that? Curious. Uh, Honestly, with a lot of sort of marketing, creativity, specials, things like that to kind of keep myself. I always think if I can keep myself interested, I can keep other people interested. Uh, Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Um, One of the things I like for them to do, uh, and this is kind of emblematic of my whole attitude, is sometimes when I want to talk to them about cleanliness, and we have, um, you know, uh, an open cook line where all the customers can see. I'll say, when in doubt, come around to the outside and look at it from a customer's point of view. You will suddenly see everything wrong that you didn't see while you're on the line because you're so used to it. If you come over here and be like, oh, there's some noodles on the ground there and there's a dirty towel right there and there's a little bit of spilled water and the store's not wiped down. And in that same way, like I, I always want them to imagine like you, you're a customer. What do you want out of this situation? Is this how you want to be greeted? Is this how you want to be handed food? Yeah. Is this how you want to be talked to? When you ask, hey, where are the forks? Do you want somebody just to grunt and point at them? Or do you want somebody to grab the fork and bring Beautiful. it to you? And uh, you remind me so much of a lesson from Jeff Benjamin uh, from the Vetri Restaurant Group, massive restaurant group out of Philadelphia, wrote in front of the house. And he says, you've got to sit in every seat in your restaurant and experience it from the customer's perspective. And that in itself is empathy. But if you can actually put yourself in their position physically, that brings that empathy to a whole new level. So great stuff. Yeah. Well, it's, it's about changing your perspective too, right? Uh, What is one common or sorry, one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff? So this is something that's standard within your, 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 your restaurants, but unstandard within the industry. Um, not sure what that would be. There are definitely certain things that, you know, sometimes we have um, hacks uh, that you can add on to your bowls and stuff. And we have uh, our own little um, hot sauce that we call the uh, spice bomb. So people will come up and like, 
ask like, oh, do you have sriracha? Do you have hot sauce and stuff? And we would always, instead of giving them sriracha, which we do have, we'll give them a little thing of hot sauce. And we're not going to charge you like an extra dollar, you know, well after the fact. But it's, I don't know that that's unique so much. It's more of like, what what would you want, again, in that experience? Do you want to suddenly have to pull out another dollar for this little thing? It sounds like you're nickel and diming people. It's just like, no, let's just, here you go. No worries. You know what I mean? Share an online resource or tool that you've been leveraging. Huh. Um, I don't know that I have a specific place that I go to, but I do. I mean, I lean on Google and I lean on YouTube for stuff. I mean, they're literally sometimes, you know, sometimes when I have a piece of machinery breakdown, instead of trying to call a rep and, and schedule a repair and stuff, like I'll go on YouTube and be like, how do you relight a pilot in a stove from 1986? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And believe it or not, like 90% of the time, somebody yeah. somewhere has posted yep. that. And it's a great sort of resource. And it's, you know, one of my other, if you want to go to mantras, is fake mm-hmm. it till you make it, right? And so sometimes, you know, uh, an employee will ask me, like, well, how do you do such and such? And I'd be like, well, hold on. And I'd lean over and <laughs> look it up on my phone. I have yeah. no shame in admitting I don't know. Yeah, Let's figure absolutely. it out. Uh, is there a channel, like, on YouTube or any, like, one person that puts out a lot of, a lot of stuff or... Okay. Not particularly, because uh, also like the stuff I end up looking up is kind of okay, random. Cool. So, uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant, and how has it influenced operations, efficiency, uh, uh, communication, anything like that? Uh, I think the biggest and easiest one is we use Square for our POS, and I literally did not train people on it. Like the first <laughs> day we had it, and I set up my menu, I just said, "Okay, come over here," and I stood on the outside as a customer, and I said, "Okay, give me an Uhura." with an extra spice bomb and I just had them figure it out and they literally like oh okay this button yeah and then okay now ring it up and now here's my credit card and I literally did not show them how to use it and they all figured it out like that's (laughs) brilliant I mean that plus you know having a younger generation of people working for you another one of those pros when you get somebody who's you know, like yeah. 20, 19, 18 years old, like it's intuitive yeah. for them. Uh, so one of those pros yeah. of going young. And I love it too. Like we, we also use, um, we use an app for all of our timesheets and all of our scheduling so that I don't have to literally send every person a text about what's like, app? what's your schedule? And uh, okay. it's called T-Sheets. Um, it's not my favorite to be frank, but it, it definitely does what it, what it should do in that way like when i post the schedule it posts to everybody's phone apps uh they can log they can clock in and clock out on their phone they can look at their schedules and see who's on who's available all that stuff is just like makes life so much easier if i can cut as much paper out of my life as possible i'm talking to all my vendors be like if you already email me invoices don't mail me invoices yeah i just don't need that much more paper um i deal with my accountant and bookkeeper, you know, over email and everything. And she has access to all the stuff. So it's just like, there's no reason for stuff to be harder than it is today. So, you know, um, I'm curious before you go to the last question, what was it about square initially before you got to use it that made you want to go with that platform? Um, I had used it already um, when I was doing pop-up events and stuff simply because I could Mm -hmm. operate off of my phone with a little, you know, credit card plug on there. And here's the other thing, and it goes back to my other mantra about um, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, one of the hardest things when I was uh, in sort of conceptualization and pre-development, when I was thinking about what POS should I use, what what um, insurance company should I use for, for liability, what um, 
what kind of apps should I use? Uh, what kind of equipment should I buy? Which fryer should I buy? And you get overwhelmed with too much choice. And then ultimately, it's like if I'm choosing between these three fryers who have the exact same specs and they have their three different brands and their prices are pretty similar. Yeah. You're just, just pick one. You know what I mean? So the same with Square. Like when I was thinking about it, like I'm already used to it. I looked over. Uh, Athenian Grill uses Square. Uh, Kentucky for Kentucky uses Square. Crank and Boom uses yeah. Square. Yep. Good enough for me. You know what I mean? Like three people that I respect. Yeah. Seem to have no problem. Square's a great with it. platform. I'm not uh, going to. It's one of the most it. recommended on the show, yeah. and it, I think it's it's good for people who are scaling into something bigger because it's a very simple platform, uh, yeah. and sometimes less is yeah. more. So, uh, great, great yeah, tool absolutely. there. All right, so this is the last question. It's a big right. one. You ready for it? If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow, and all the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could tie your name to. Uh, for the good of humanity, what would those, or just for the good of the restaurant industry, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Wow. Um, ultimately, I feel like my philosophical thoughts aren't restaurant specific. I think they're all, they apply to business, mm-hmm. they apply to one's life in general. And for me, like, I don't differentiate necessarily between mm-hmm. me and my brand, even, you know what I mean? Especially having developed it as a, as a person. I think. Certainly, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Just do something. I remember reading uh, about a study they had done uh, with these two groups of, um, I think, craftspeople where uh, one half of the class was required, and I'm probably getting the story slightly wrong, but one half of the class had to make uh, like a a clay bowl, and they said, uh, just make me a perfect one, and all I want is one perfect one, whereas the other class, I want as many as you can make. And ultimately, the one that made a lot made better bowls Mm -hmm. because of practice. Mm -hmm. And they're not sitting there overthinking this one bowl. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. for me, it's just about, like, just do stuff. I think do well by doing good, I think, is a really great one that I've discovered. um, Simply because it's – I love win-win situations. And I think if you do good and give back to the community and tie yourself to the community, you ultimately will – do well now you got to be smart about it you can't have a give back day where you give back 90 percent of your proceeds on the day you're gonna you know you're gonna go out of business giving away so you still have to be self-sustaining but i think you can be really smart about it um is that three that's that's two and i think the third is just go big you know (laughs) big awesome this has been a really great interview, and I was uh, and I wasn't say skeptical. I knew it was gonna be good, but you were a different angle because uh, of the, of the come up, and it was a really interesting come up. Uh, and there is tons of value in this. And uh, thank you so much for just taking the time to share your story, your knowledge. Uh, there is no question you are unstoppable. But before we say goodbye, uh, you got to call somebody out. That's one thing I do on every show. So who's one independent restaurant operator? Uh, somebody you admire. I think would make a great guest mentor on the show. Maybe somebody I can get in touch with in the next day and a half. Uh, <laughs> ulterior motive, huh? Uh, I think you should talk to uh, Jeff Newman from Blue Door Smokehouse. Right. He does the best barbecue in town. Uh, I've had him a couple times uh, as a guest uh, on my show back in the day, and he actually guest hosted one time. Nice. Uh, I also did, for a while there, I did trivia, uh, like a little quiz show at the end of my shows. And then at the end of the season, I would have like a contest of champions, mm-hmm. and he won it hands down. The guy knows so much Beautiful. about food. 
look out, Jeff. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you as a guest on the show. And uh, let the folks at home know if we want to follow your work, if we want to follow what you're up to, if we have any questions about the information you shared with us, how can we connect? Uh, best way is just to look up Atomic Raman on Instagram and Facebook. I do everything there. Beautiful. One more time. There is no questioning, Dan. You are unstoppable. Wow, another great episode wrapped up here at Restaurants Unstoppable. And man, where do you even start with this one? Tons of great nuggets in today's conversation. I think the two big ones that stuck out to me that really uh, I want to draw attention to is the advice that Chef Wu had on knowing yourself and really, really getting clarity on who you are and then doing whatever version or whatever features of yourself as big as possible, whatever makes you you, whatever sets you apart from other people, lean into those things, do them as big as possible. That's your personal brand. That's how you stand out. And um, also the other great advice uh, is scaling. I feel like a lot of people in his situation who were on Master Chef would use that uh, celebrity status that to go out and to get investors right away and to try to do something massive right away while they still have momentum. Dan Wu took the approach of now's the time to grow my personal brand. Uh, I can manage this. I can get involved with in my community. I can align my personal brand with other brands. I can start a podcast and, and surround myself with you know even further align my, my brand with other successful chefs in the community. And I can learn from these people. And he only opened a restaurant because he did such a good job at aligning his personal brand with all these other people and creating a name for himself in his community that opportunities came to him. And I think you know it's, it's genius. Uh, it's a great way to to scale to uh, to grow your your following. So when you do go open your own restaurant, you you have that that network of people who can support you. And uh, the idea of using a Kickstarter, <clears throat> excuse me, of using a Kickstarter to uh, not necessarily get the money, but to promote your business. I mean, first time I ever heard that. So really cool stuff. Uh, today's conversation. Also, some really good advice on uh, finding your investors and not going too big in finding the right investors. Uh, how he uh, compared that to playing poker. I thought that was really cool. Awesome stuff today. All right, guys. Like always, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Shoot me an email. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me what I can do to best serve you, what topics we can cover. And now is the time for you to write me an email and tell me what you wish I was doing in general. Uh, maybe some added features or things I could do at Restaurant Unstoppable that, that would make you want to come back more and more. Uh, I'm building out the platform. I'm working on some projects and um, r- really taking your uh, recommendations and suggestions into consideration. So again, Eric at Restaurant Unstoppable. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Eric Catchatori, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. Uh, but the best way to help and support this podcast is is by sharing it. Who is somebody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry? Help them surround themselves with incredible mentors through this podcast. You are the average of those you surround yourself with. Uh, it's a it's a great gift to give. So, uh, all right, that's all for today. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>